Okay, would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians? The book of Ephesians chapter 6. It has been so good to walk through this portion of the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6. And today we come to verse 15. So if you can, I want to invite you to stand. Let's read God's precious word. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You may be seated. Lord, we ask you, we ask you the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Different occasions require different footwear. Amen. So different occasions require different shoes and footwear that you need. So, for example, if you play football, and I'm not talking about American football, football, the real deal. They, they, they you guys call soccer, right? Okay, if you go, or some of you play American football, and that's fine. Some of you play ultimate frisbee or baseball. Now, let me ask you, if you're going to play these sports and the field is soaking wet, will that work? Playing with running shoes. Now, you have special shoes for that type of game and that type of grounds, right? If you're preparing yourself for a marathon, you don't train for a marathon wearing dress shoes. Or if you're practicing ballet, you don't wear Boots for dancing ballet. Right? And the same in war. Especially as you think about in the army, soldiers, they need a very special type of footwear. One of the most important elements in the soldier's gear is actually his boots. One article says, Soldiers in the Continental Army, under the command of G General George Washington, lacked cold-weather clothing and boots during the frigid winter they spent at Valley Forge. Their painful struggle showed just how vital basic, basic equipment like footwear was to the success of any military conflict at home or overseas. It was actually during the Korean War that they realize how much they need to improve the, the boots and the footwear of the soldiers. It was during the Korean War. And that's when they created what is known as the Mickey Mouse boot because of the shape. And these boots are made of two layers of seamless rubber with wool insulation between. 
Thus, they prevent heat from escaping the boot while also preventing cold air and moisture from penetrating the exterior rubber layer. It was during the Korean War that the Chinese troops trapped the American soldiers in some of the harshest regions where the temperature came to 25 degrees below zero. And it's said that the, f- the feet of some soldiers froze into blocks of ice inside the boots. And that's why they were required to work on new footwear for the soldiers, developing something better. The Romans were well known, the, the, the Roman army was well known for conquering so many other territories because Caesar had invested in special footwear for his soldiers. Therefore, we see how important it is the type of footwear we wear in war. And Ephesians 6 is reminding us this truth. What is true in the natural sphere is truth in the spiritual sphere, that we need special footwear for the war that we are facing. Ephesians 6 tells us that our captain has provided the best footwear for his army. And this footwear is what? The readiness of the gospel of peace. So as we come to Ephesians, we start studying the the whole book of Ephesians. We start seeing how Paul is emphasizing over and over again how the Ephesians are supposed to walk in a proper manner because they have been made or remade into a new man. Therefore, they need to walk according to that new nature that they have. So, for example, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should uh, walk in them. And walk is a lifestyle, okay? You have your feet and your legs, and that's where you're going. It shows the, the path of your life, your actions. Or, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Or Ephesians four seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer what? What? Walk as the Gentiles do. So you have a way of walking and you have a way not of walking. You can't have, got to avoid that type of walk. Or Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and what? Walk. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Or Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you, what? Walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. So Paul has been emphasizing over and over again, what? Walk. There is a a way of walking that's required for Christians. We are in Christ. We are a new Adam. Therefore, we need to walk according to this new creation that we are. We are a new man with new feet, and we need a new footwear for our feet. And that's what Paul is going to give us now in Ephesians 6. We saw that the the call is 
to stand. He has been calling us to stand. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. He keeps calling us to stand. That's the main verb. To stand, stand, stand. How are we going to stand? With the belt of truth. With the breastplate of righteousness. And now he's going to talk about the footwear. He keeps emphasizing that we need to stand. How are we going to stand? Now we need this special footwear to keep you standing. And that's what Paul is going to give us here in verse 15. So, verse 15, he says that the shoes he's giving us is the readiness of the gospel or given by the gospel. The ESV says, the shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. My personal translation of the Greek text was, and tying or, or binding, binding beneath your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. There is actually no mention of shoes in the Greek text. But it's implied, and that's why the ESV adds shoes in many other translations. I like how the NIV says, the NIV has, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, so, the picture here is the whole church. Think about the church as the army now wearing this new footwear that Jesus is giving to the church. And it is the readiness in, your, in our feet is fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Uh, it's interesting that the military success of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were doing large measure to their armies being well shod and thus able to undertake long marches. The Greek and the Roman armies were able to conquer so much because of the footwear that they had. One of the aspects, of course. They were able to travel long distance. The proper footwear gave the soldiers two things. Stability and ability. Why is stability? So they don't fall. As they are marching, as they are walking through different terrain, they are going to keep standing. Stability. And the ability, so they keep marching, no matter what they face. And you think about, if Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar gave good gifts to his soldiers, how much more our Father who is in heaven will not give us the best footwear? Amen? And he gives us. Uh, as you think about... Uh, Throughout the scriptures, especially in the ancient Near East, when people would put sandals, or we call shoes today, but they had more sandals, that was a picture of getting ready for something. Right? Most people would walk barefoot, so when you'd put the sandals, that meant what? You're ready for action. So in Exodus 12, 11, when they have to celebrate the, Lord's, the, the Passover, do you remember how the Lord commands them to celebrate the Passover? They had staff, they had a belt, and they had what in their feet? The shoes, the sandals. Why? Because they are ready to march. As God's army, they are ready to move on. And now you think about the church now, the true Israel. As we are going through this greater exodus, marching to the true promised land, the Lord also calls us to have our feet ready. To march, obey Him, walk with Him. So, and the, the, the shoes that the Lord gives us is called the readiness or the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's interesting. The shoes or the, the boots that the Lord gives us is actually the preparation. Huh. 
The preparation. The word literally means a state of being ready for action. So the Lord calls us as a church to have our feet. And you think about our feet, where you walk, where you go, the path that you take that implies your lifestyle. The Lord tells us to clothe our feet with the readiness, the readiness of the gospel of peace. What does he mean, the readiness of the gospel of peace? Why does the church have to wear, as a footwear, the readiness of the gospel of peace? Have you thought about that? I believe that what the Lord wants us, this readiness here, is that the church must be ready, ready to do two things. Personify and proclaim the gospel of peace. And they're inseparable. The church is supposed to personify or to embody, you can call embody or manifest the gospel of peace in our lives. And the, Lord, the, church calls the, the, the Lord calls the church to always be ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Always be ready to show the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. We must be in a state of readiness to manifest the harmony that we have with God, now with one another. So the church is called, think about that, brothers and sisters, the church is called to be always ready to show forth the peace that the gospel gives us. We have peace with God, we have peace with one another, and that's exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Look how Paul says, he's calling the church to embody the peace that God has given them. He says, remember that you were, in verses 12 through 14, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul is calling the church to show forth in their lives the harmony Think about, you're saved, God comes, He rescues you, he, he, he has a new relationship with you. And now you're to show that new relationship with God through, by having a relationship of harmony with one another. That's what the church is called to do. Be always ready. The church, is, the church has the call to show the harmony. So think about Black and white, rich and poor, men and women, young and old, educated and educated, all classes of people are to live in harmony and unity that the peace of the gospel has brought us together. So we must be always ready. When people come, when people look at our church, they must always see this readiness. They are always ready to manifest the peace of the gospel in their lives. Peter says something very similar. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being, and here is the same root of the Greek word here for being ready, being prepared. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We always read this passage and we think that Peter is calling us to do what? To fill our minds with all sorts of philosophical, historical defense of the Christian faith because he used the word apologia, where you get apologetic. So people are always saying, here we go. We need to always be ready to defend. So you need to be studying apologetics. Amen, I think that's part. But I don't think that's the main thing that Peter is saying here. I agree with Jim Summer. He says, the focus of First Peter is not on preparing believers to present philosophical, historical, or scientific arguments. It's on living the gospel in community in such a way that it testifies to the reality of the risen Christ. So always be ready to show the gospel. When people come, come to your home, come to our church, they see us together, they always see what? The peace that the gospel has given us, this harmony, love. Uh, so we saw that there is the readiness to embody to personify but there is also the readiness to proclaim and we must be always ready to proclaim the gospel and that's what we see sorry it's not there but you have in your bibles look at chapter 2 of ephesians ephesians chapter 2 look at verse 17 referring to jesus paul says and he jesus came and he did what he did what? He preached peace. Amen? So we must live, embody the peace, and we must do what? Preach. So that's what it means to be ready, to put the shoes of the readiness of the gospel. The church is always ready to live, to manifest, and to proclaim the gospel of peace. Amen? So, we are called to be ready. Ready to manifest, to proclaim the gospel of peace. But what is the gospel? You see, we are supposed to proclaim the gospel. We are supposed to embody the gospel. But what is the gospel? What is the good news? Somebody asked you, what is the gospel? Somebody comes to Sam and says, Sam, I always talk about the gospel. I was at your church, I heard you guys saying the gospel song. What is the gospel? Or they ask Ben, Ben, what is the gospel? How would you answer? What is the gospel? See, so sometimes we, we are so used to words, and then we have a hard time defining those words. We are so familiar with the vocabulary, and actually have a hard time defining and understanding what truly is. So, the gospel, the Greek word, evangelion, you have the prefix, Ill there, it means good, noble, where you have joyful news, good news, noble news. So that's one thing to understand. Gospel, good news, noble news, beautiful news. The wonderful, the joyful news that God has acted in Christ on my behalf. Amen? And we can see how Paul, so you can just go through Ephesians and see what the gospel is in Ephesians. So for example, Paul says the part of, great part of the gospel is the, our election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness in Christ. So he says in chapter 1, 
verses 4 through 7. Even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. That, that, you see, the heart of the gospel. In love, nothing that I did was His love, His unconditional love. He predestined me. He chose me because I could never have chosen Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption. He adopted me. I'm no longer a son of the wrath. I'm a son of God. The adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have what? Redemption was redeemed. He bought me from the, slave, from the market of slavery, of sin. I belong to Him. Through His blood, the death of Christ, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So you see, here's part of the gospel. Beautiful summary of the gospel that we can expand. Also in Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14, Paul says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and then he explains what, what, what the word of truth is. The gospel of your salvation. Well, the gospel of your salvation is the word of truth. And believed in Him, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, you think about the gospel, this word of truth. God has spoken to us the truth in Christ, and we believed in Him. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, He opens our hearts, we believe in Him, He dwells with us, He seals us for the glory to come. Paul says also, that part of the gospel, wonderful news, is that Christ is the head of all things. Satan is not the head of all things. Chaos is not the head of all things. Our president is not the head of all things. Christ Jesus is the head of all things. Amen? So this is it's all part of the wonderful news, the good news, the joyful news of God. Also, in chapter 2, you can look at chapter 2. Here is a beautiful summary of the gospel. Verses 1 through 3. The gospel is the wonderful news that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God, children of wrath by nature. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. So that's the gospel. We had the bad news, the horrible news that we were dead in sins, children of wrath. And yet God in His mercy saved us. The gospel is the announcement that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's verses 4 through 10. And then you keep reading chapter 2. And then he's going to explain even more about the gospel and how the gospel is about Christ. And the gospel of Christ is peace. And peace between us and God and between ourselves. It's all part of the gospel. Amen? So that's what we're supposed to be preaching and embodying and living. The gospel. So, Sam, if they ask you what the gospel is, Sam knows. He can go to Ephesians. They ask Ben what the gospel is, he can go to Ephesians. They just show, look at all the beautiful, the wonderful news. Ephesians chapter 2, the horrible news. I have bad news for you. You're dead in sins and trespasses. You are a child of wrath. 
But God, who is rich in love, He has given us Christ. Now we in Christ, we are seated above the heavenly places with Him. Amen? Uh, Paul calls here the gospel of peace. The readiness of the gospel of peace. And that's interesting because that's the only place where we find the gospel of peace. Paul calling this the gospel of peace. Paul calls the gospel, look at in Romans 15, 19, he calls the gospel of Christ. In Romans 1, 1, he calls the gospel of God. In Romans 1, 9, he calls the gospel of his son. In Ephesians 1, 13, he calls the gospel of your salvation. In Romans 16, 25, he says, my gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he says, our gospel. But here, it's a unique situation that he calls the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. What does it mean, the gospel of peace? I believe that the gospel of peace means two things. The content of the gospel is characterized by peace. So there's the content of the gospel is peace. And those who embrace the gospel, those who are embraced by the gospel, have their lives now uh, characterized by that peace. So that's why it's the gospel of peace. The content of the gospel is peace, reconciliation between man and God. The content of the gospel is peace. You're, you were a child of Satan, wrath, but now God has reconciled you to Himself. There is peace between you and God. And now our lives, because we are in Christ, who is our shalom, who is our peace, now our lives are marked by peace. Amen? So to better understand peace, we need to think about sin. Right? The good news of peace. How can you tell somebody good news of peace and if he doesn't know the bad news? Everybody thinks that you cannot present good news if everything is going well. Right? There's no point in, in, in good news if everything is good. So you need to present the, the bad news. And the bad news is that sin... Th- let, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chap- chapter 1 and 2. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. That's a very unique situation. That's before the sin, before the fall, and the relationship between Adam and Eve, and the relationship between God and Adam and Eve was a relationship characterized by what? The Hebrew word is shalom, harmony, friendship, loving relationship. That's how their relationship was. They dwell together, God and man dwelling together. There was Eden before the fall, in harmony, friendship, peace. And then what happened when they sinned? What happened to their relationship? That was broken. They were shattered. They were separated. One of the words for sin in, in Hebrew is pesha, which means to, to, to rebel. You're rebelling against someone. Revolt. It says to be in open defiance of an authority. And that's exactly what sin does. Is instead of having that harmonious, beautiful relationship, is a relationship of defiance and rebellion. That's what sin does. Sin destroyed the relationship between God and man. Sin transferred man from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of what? 
darkness, the evil one. Men became rebellious and hostile towards God. And you might say, oh, you, you are... You, no, Guga, you're going way too far. That was not that bad. It wasn't that bad. So why does God place cherubim with swords full of fire to show that you don't come into my presence anymore? We are enemies. You dare not to try to enter my presence. There's hostility between us. And the hostility is demonstrated by cherubim guarding the presence of God. Man, because of sin, is an enemy of God. Paul says in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, or Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... That was us. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, enemies of God. And let me tell you, that's a terrible thing to be an enemy of God. The psalmist says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Or Psalm 68, 21. But God will strike the heads of His enemies. The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. Terrible thing to be an enemy of God. He will remove the hairy crown. Meaning he will behead them. That's the picture of the Lord fighting against his enemies. So, that, that's the horrible news. To understand peace, we need to understand sin. How sin broke the relationship, the harmony, the, the loving relationship that was between God and man. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace is this wonderful news, this beautiful news. We are singing here. Remember, we are singing, it's your grace. We are, we are singing the, the, the lyrics. We are the lost and helpless ones, the rebels and renegades who spurn your holy love. But you have loved us and opened our eyes. It's your grace from beginning to the end. That's the gospel of peace. We were the rebels, the renegades, spurning your holy love, hating you. And yet God came in grace in Jesus and opened our eyes. Or we are singing the gospel song, Holy God, in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross He took my sin. By His death, I live again. The, the enmity, the hostility was destroyed through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the wonderful news that once we were enemies with God, we hated God. Now through Jesus, we have peace. Our relationship has been restored. One of Paul's favorite words for salvation is reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Do you reconcile two parties that love each other? Can you reconcile two parties that love each other? No. You don't reconcile two people who love each other and they have peace with each other. You reconcile two parties that are uh, against each other. And Paul often calls the gospel ambassadors proclaiming reconciliation. 
There was a relationship of hostility, anger, but now in Christ Jesus, their relationship has been restored. There is peace now. That's the major idea behind the word peace. One Hebrew scholar says, the general meaning behind the root, and then you have there where we get shalom for peace, is of completion and fulfillment. That was their lives in Eden. A complete life with God. Fulfillment of entering into a state of wholeness and unity. A restored relationship. We often think about peace as what? Tranquility of mind. That's how we see peace. Peace for us is all about tranquility of mind. Absence of conflict. But actually, the major idea is wholeness. Restoration of relationship. We have peace with God even during the most violent battles because we are in a harmonious relationship with Him. Our relationship has been restored. And that's, that's exactly what Paul has been saying through Ephesians. For Paul, peace is primarily the restoration of a relationship, going back to a harmonious relationship. So, for example, Paul opens his letter by saying, Ephesians 1, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace was the greatest blessing promise in the new covenant. Peace with God. That's why it's called the covenant of peace. Because you'd be restored with God once again. According to Isaiah 53, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? That brought us what? Shalom, peace. Isaiah 11, we, we, we saw Isaiah 11 when we were walking through the, the belt of truth. Remember that that's a messianic promise that the Messiah would come wearing, that belt of truth. And you go to Isaiah 11 and you read Isaiah 11 talking about the, the stump of Jesse coming, the Messiah coming, the son of David coming. And he's going to bring what to the earth? Peace. And there's that picture of the, the wolf and what? The lamb dwelling together. It's a picture of harmony. And what Paul is saying here, he's, it's a benediction upon the church saying, in Christ Jesus, you have that shalom. You have that peace. It's upon the church now, in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, we start seeing how Paul is using peace as relational. Harmony among the family of Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For Christ himself is our what? Peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of what? Hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making what? Peace. And might reconcile us. Look at that. Reconciliation. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he did what? He preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you start seeing how Paul is using peace throughout Ephesians as the harmony, the relationship between God's people. Since we have been restored to God now, we show that by being in harmony with each other. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul says, 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he literally says, in the chains of peace. Huh. What, what does Paul understand by peace? Harmonious relationship, unity among the church. That's Paul's primary idea of peace. Look at that. Eager to maintain the unity. We, we don't create unity. Christ created the unity of the church. Christ bought the unity of the church with His blood. And we are called to maintain that unity. With chains. As if you are chained to each other. With chains of peace, Paul says. So the gospel of peace... According to Ephesians, is not how most people see peace. For many, for many Christians, even Christians, peace is primarily something very individualistic, self-centered, egocentric. Right? I, if I feel peace about that, I will do it. Right? Isn't that how we say, oh, I'm feeling peace about that, so I'm ready to go and do it. I need to feel peace about something. That's how we see. It's more a new age than biblical understanding of peace. We want this tranquility of mind. Actually, throughout the scriptures, the primary un- idea behind peace is what? A harmonious relationship with God and now with one another, with God's people. That's what we see throughout the, the pages of the Bible. For Paul, peace is a gift of the Spirit to the church through the gospel of Jesus in which we walk in harmony and love. We are called to be chained to each other, be chained to each other with Chains of shalom, peace. Amen? So that's the gospel of peace. So let me just bring, uh, lastly here, the, the use of the Old Testament. And I think that's important for us to understand, because as I have been telling you, Paul is not looking at the Roman soldier, he's not looking at, uh, at the Roman army, he's looking at the Old Testament. That's his primary source. Paul is looking at the Old Testament. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 walk hand in hand. What is Isaiah 53 all about? What is Isaiah 53 all about? Who? Who? The suffering servant, the Messiah who will come and redeem God's people. Amen? But chapter 52 is inseparable from that. Chapter 52 of Isaiah says, Awake! Awake! Put on his strength, O Zion. Huh. Hasn't Paul just called the church to wake up for the spiritual warfare and put on the might of God? The strength of God? Where is Paul drawing that from? Ah, from the Old Testament. Put on strength, O Zion. Put on beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And then he's going to explain why they're supposed to wake up. God is coming with victory. There is victory for them. So, Isaiah 52 through 53 is the announcement that the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming victory is about to take place. With the suffering servant. So look at verse 7 of chapter 52. Look at verse 7. 
how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes what? Peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Ephesians 6, 15, Isaiah 52, verse 7, and I believe Nahum 1. Nahum, I think, has only one chapter, but in Nahum, those are the only places, and it's something very similar to Isaiah 52. That's the only place in the Bible where you have feet, good news, and peace all together. So clearly, Paul is borrowing, is drawing from this image here. The Greek version of the Old Testament is very similar to how Paul has. The feet of the one who brings the good news of peace. And you think about in those days, think about the geography, the custom in those days in the Near East. And the messenger is coming, running. And his feet, can you imagine running through those roads? Oftentimes they would just throw away their sandals because they had to run fast. And he comes, and his feet, can you imagine his feet after running miles and miles? His, his feet has callus, and he's bleeding. And what do they say about his feet? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Why? Because of what it's bringing. It's bringing the good news of peace. And he says the content of the gospel here is the good news of peace. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. What? The sovereignty of God is the heart of the gospel? The sovereignty of God? Give him something else. Not the sovereignty of God. That's exactly what Isaiah is telling us. Our God reigns, and that's why we have peace. We have a sovereign God who reigns. He's so mighty that He can deliver us from our sins. Only a God who is sovereign can deliver us from the wrath to come and make us friends with God once again. That's why it's wonderful news. It's the gospel. God reigns. God reigns over my sin. God reigns over my salvation. God reigns over my reconciliation. God reigns over my state of chaos. That's why it's beautiful. The sovereignty of God. God reigns. That's the gospel. And He reigns so mightily that He saved me. He rescued me. He changed my heart. Amen? Amen. That's the contrast because in Isaiah 50. Turn there with me, Isaiah 59. We have been seeing Isaiah 59. We saw how the breastplate of righteousness was derived from there. Uh, in verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. But look at verse 7 of Isaiah 59. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the saving grace of God, apart from His sovereignty in, in changing us, Look at our feet. Verse 7 of Isaiah 59. Their feet run to evil. And they're swift to shed innocent blood. Apart from, And Paul is going to use this passage in Romans chapter 3 when he's describing the totality, the totality of 
The power of sin in our lives, how it affects from head to toe. And Paul used this passage here, and he shows us how apart from the gospel of peace, our feet are unclean, our feet are filthy, our feet are gross and nasty before God, because it's marked by what? Sin. But in Christ Jesus, we become a new man, and those feet are transformed. And you get beautiful feet now. Feet clothed with Christ Jesus. And close with the gospel of peace. So, I believe that when Paul tells us to put on the gospel of peace, the readiness of the gospel of peace as our footwear, I strongly believe he's calling us to put on Christ. It's Christ. Christ is the whole armor. He told us earlier, for Christ, for He is what? Our peace. He came and He preached peace. He came and He provided peace, Paul is telling us. He is the gospel. He is the provider. He is the preacher of peace. So when Paul tells us to put on, to shod our feet with the preparation of the readiness of the gospel, he's saying that we must be clothed with Christ from head to toe. He's going to talk about the helmet of salvation, and now he's talking about the feet. We must be entirely clothed with Christ. Let me ask you, how did Jesus defeat the enemy? How did Jesus defeat Satan? What did he have in his feet? What was he wearing? Wasn't he wearing the readiness of the gospel of peace? Wasn't Jesus wearing the readiness of the gospel of peace? Always preaching the gospel of peace and always demonstrating through his life a harmonious relationship with the Father. So how did Christ overcome? Oh, he overcame by wearing, by shutting his feet with the gospel of peace. You look at Jesus' life, he's always preaching the gospel of peace and he's always embodying the gospel of peace. And now he gives to us. It's yours. It's yours. My equipment is yours. So, let me finish here. Paul is telling us, commanding us. The ESV says, The shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So let me just remind you, we must be a church always ready, always ready to do two things. Proclaim, Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. And the other thing is to embody the gospel. Manifest the gospel of peace in our lives. Amen? But you can only do that when you know the gospel. And you've got to know the gospel relationally. You've got to know the gospel intimately. So you've got to be always knowing the gospel more and more. To be a church that's always ready, always ready to proclaim and embody the gospel of peace, we must know the gospel. And we must know the gospel personally. Amen? We must know the gospel intimately. That's why membership in the church is so important. You've got to make sure that we have members, members who know. And I'm saying, no, no, it's your mind, but they know because they have experienced the gospel of peace. 
How can you have a church that is called to express the gospel of peace when they don't know the gospel of peace? And that's how we see so many churches full of unconverted people. People don't care about membership anymore. Just numbers. So suddenly you have a bunch of people who have no idea what the gospel of peace is. They have never been reconciled to God. Therefore, they cannot show forth. That's a church that can never be ready to show, to proclaim. And we always, honestly, sometimes we hear... there's that weird thing that we think that the gospel was just for the beginning of our Christian life. Oh, you know, I heard the gospel. And now I'm done. I need something deeper. Can we get anything deeper than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can we master reconciliation, adoption, redemption, predestination, the love of God, forgiveness, mercy? So we will spend eternity mastering the gospel. <laughs> Amen? So the gospel is something, not just for the beginning of the Christian life. We need daily the gospel of Jesus. And our actions must reflect that. In our church, think about in the Garden of Eden, our local church must be a, a picture of what was Eden before the fall, the harmony, the love, the relationship among us without hostility, without anger, without hate. Amen? Edenic church, similar to Eden before the fall, where there is harmony, shalom. People, the members love God. They have been reconciled to God. They love Christ and they love one another. And they know what? Satan hates that. He hates that. And he will attack us as as he has been. Satan will strive with all his army and power to destroy the peace, the harmony within the church. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Satan wants to shatter the harmonious relationship among God's people. And he has been. He has been trying to crush this glorious peace that we experience here. Amen? This beautiful harmony among us. Satan has been trying really hard to destroy, throwing his nasty darts. And look at us, going through the evil day, you look at this church, and people who visit us, and they see us, and they can only say, wow, what love there is among those people. There is love, there is peace, there is harmony. Why? Because it's a a local church, shod, like a horse, you shod the horse. Yeah, it's a church shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Close is the gospel. The peace that we have been experiencing in our church in the midst of the evil day, this joy, harmony, love, unity, is a revelation and a manifestation of God's grace in clothing us with Christ Jesus and shodding our feet with the readiness of the gospel. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he says in John chapter 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have shalom, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But in him we have shalom, we have harmony, we have love, we have a restoration of relationship. Amen? 
And we need to be alert. One last text. That's James. To help us here. James 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you have... You do not ask, and you ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Quarreling, slander, fighting, speaking evil, hating others. It's all evidence of the absence of the gospel of peace. When we argue in marriage, is an expression that the gospel of peace is not reigning in our hearts. When people start attacking us, slandering, it's a manifestation that the gospel of peace is not reigning the heart. Those are the words of James right here. When the gospel is not ruling our hearts, when the gospel of Jesus is not our all-sufficient treasure, we become hostile towards God, therefore we become hostile towards one another. There is no way to become enemy of God and not become enemy with God's people. So may the Lord deliver us and keep us surrounded, grounded in the gospel of peace. Amen. Isn't that amazing that in, a, in the context of warfare, you have this cruel enemy, battles, Paul gives us a weapon of peace. Ah, that's crazy. The weapon you give us to fight this battle is... The gospel of peace says, yes, we conquer this enemy by behaving and proclaiming the gospel of peace. So, let us be a church that shows through actions, deeds, words that we have been conquered by this gospel of peace. May this harmonious, loving, joyful relationship that we have among ourselves continue being our footwear to keep us standing in the evil day. Let us stand firm. Let us withstand and let Satan attack us. Let him come. Let him test us and show us that we have, we have in our feet the readiness of the gospel of peace. Amen? Father, we thank you. We thank for your word. We thank for being very kind towards us and sending your son to bring peace and I pray, O oh Lord, that uh, this church would be marked by peace. Ready, ready to proclaim and ready to embody the good news of peace. Thank you for the joy, the harmony, the love, the unity that we have here, Lord. I pray that you would preserve and enlarge this peace that we have. So help us. Be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.